0: Thanks, Jenny. Uh, Let's pray. Lord, as we reach the final chapter of uh, 1 Samuel, we pray that we would uh, reflect on these words, reflect on the life of Saul, which ends uh, so uh, sadly, I guess, and so tragically. And we pray that we would uh, respond in faith in your son Jesus, our only hope, our only true anointed one who can save us, Uh, May we reflect deeply on our own lives, our own attitudes, our own understanding of you as we look at this passage, so that we can be sure that you have saved us by grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Well, humanity for a long time, if not all time, has set themselves uh, above uh, God, haven't they? Or felt they've not had the need for a God and today's sort of age and culture we we hardly even need to say it do we it's just the assumed state of things isn't it Uh, no one believes in god seemingly uh, let alone the god of the bible and for most of us that say that we believe in god god is actually also become, not necessarily you and I sat here, but perhaps some of us sat here, has also become uh, what each individual wants God to be, rather than the God of the Bible. So oh, God would never do that because, you know, I, just, I don't like that, or it just doesn't seem to fit with how I'm feeling, or I'm uncomfortable with God being like that, so he's not like that, um, and so on and so forth. And we don't need to look too far outside of Uh, this room perhaps to find that kind of attitude perhaps if we find ourselves more committed to our comfort or a hobby uh, on a Sunday or enjoying our Sundays more than coming to church for example um, we're perhaps creating God to be something he's not Uh, perhaps we've not been keen to come back into service uh, on the rotors, and as we start to gather back as a church together as COVID subsides perhaps that's because we've created God to be something that he's not presumably it's based on this idea that um, God doesn't care what we do with our lives or, or doesn't mind how we use our times we've created God to be how we would like him to be we've created God if you like in our own image as opposed to us being created in God's image. So we don't bow humbly before the God of the Bible, uh, who brought us at uh, a price, didn't he, at the price of his son dying. And as a result of that purchase of us, we don't bear good fruits and works of selfless love that mirrors that same sacrifice of Christ, because we've created God to be in our image. Uh, Some of us are still at school, and perhaps you've never told anyone at school that you Uh, believe in Jesus because maybe you're just too embarrassed or at work we haven't told our colleagues or or our neighbours or just people don't know that we live for Jesus not for ourselves. Presumably that's based on this temptation to have created a God in our own image uh, not one who has created us in his image. Presumably it's based on this idea that God really has no claim over our lives whatsoever we can just live it how we want and ignore him as we see fit. Perhaps we don't need to hear from God, speak to us through his word. So we don't read our Bibles regularly. Uh, We don't see the need to join a home group if we could. We don't read the Bible with our children. Um, Presumably then that's because we've created a God in our own image that we can manipulate to be however we want. And we wouldn't want his word to influence that too much. Perhaps we're not interested in listening to him because we already think we know him. And how I think I know God is how he must be. He's simply not part of our life plan, perhaps. All of those sort of things, and I know that sounded quite heavy, ought to have been ringing like alarm bells in our ears as we have observed the life of Saul in 1 Samuel. You see, Saul believed in God. Not only that... Saul was a chosen, anointed man of God. He started okay for God, didn't he? But he soon began to create God in his own image, his own version of God. A God who would give him the glory, not keep it for himself. He didn't like what God had to say to him. And so he stopped listening to God and had all the priests killed he started finding other God views and ideas and philosophies to follow, such as the Witch of Endor. He claims to believe in and to know God and to be seeking God. But he was most concerned for his own glory, his own comfort, his own success. Uh, listen to the rants that he raved about. Uh, sat under the tamarisk tree in chapter 22, verse 6. So here he is. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. So this is after David's run away to to hide from him. Uh, Saul was seated, spear in hand, the famous spear, under the tamarisk tree on the hill of Gibeah, with all his officials standing at his side. He said to them, listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse, that's David, give all you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders and thousands of commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells, tells me that my son has, has incited my servant to lie in wait for me as he does today. You see his concern for himself and his own glory. and the, No one cares about me, my comfort. It's all about me and my glory. Uh, and a man like that like Saul ranting under the tamarisk tree he is so fearful, so paranoid about his ultimate end, isn't it? He? He's worried about what's gonna to happen, happen to him. It's ironic that the end is inevitable, isn't it? It's exactly what his fears and paranoia are leading to. Every fear and paranoia in his head perhaps every fear and paranoia and I had. What if I'm wrong? What if God isn't going to bend over backwards to make my life really comfortable and sort sort it all out how I would like it to be? So there's Saul, what if I die? What if I'm defeated? What if David defeats me? Well, the end is inevitable. And it's here in the very last chapter of 1 Samuel that we've reached today. Everything Saul fears, while attempting to reject God and live his own way is going to turn out to be exactly true. Every fear and paranoia he's had comes true or perhaps even worse than true. And so the big question for us uh, is, is the end for us also inevitable? If we live our lives, if we don't bear the fruit that proves our salvation, if we create God to be in our own image rather than accept that we are his created order and we are owned by him to live for him as he commands in his words in response to his grace, then the end is inevitable. Our fear and our paranoia, uh, perhaps the even what if I'm saved? What if I never really take God seriously rather than Yeah, I've just had a fleeting belief in Jesus. Is is that enough? But I don't do anything about it now. What if all that goes to prove that we're actually lost? What if I die and I'm judged? What if we're living with no fruit at all? What if we're living day by day for ourselves? Well, then I wonder if this passage actually says, well, our worst fears and paranoia are, are actually inevitable. Perhaps we're not saved, perhaps we've ignored the only saviour we have in Jesus. We've heard about him, we've said we believe, but we've done nothing about it and lived a very comfortable, me-first life with those fears and paranoia in the back of our head. Well, uh, we've lived into the sorry life of Saul uh, for most of this year, actually, through 1 Samuel um, and I wonder if we've repented for the ways in which we're like him. Have we seen the joy of knowing God's truly anointed one, Jesus for us, David in these times, and born the fruit that's in, in keeping with the repentance that ought to uh, be born? Or well, perhaps today, as we see Saul's inevitable end, perhaps we will truly accept the anointed one, Jesus, and bear fruit of obedience in response. I've given a long introduction because this last chapter brings it all together and it's very short, it's very straightforward. Uh, We've actually been waiting for this event since the beginning of, sorry, end of chapter 27. And if you remember, the Philistines were preparing to attack the Israelites. Um, We've known that God's people, the Israelites, are going to lose this battle since chapter 28. We know that Saul and his sons are going to die in this battle. Uh, God's people, Saul and his sons are going to die. We know that those who set set themselves against the Lord will face an inevitable end. It cannot be avoided. And so it's inevitable that the battle gets barely a sentence at the beginning of our chapter. Verse 1, chapter 31 now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount, Mount Gilboa. So that's how straightforward this is. Set yourself against the Lord. You're going to lose even Saul's sons. Uh, and Jonathan particularly, he was so, who is faithful to God and to God's true anointed, to David, uh, barely get a mention. Verse 2, the Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan uh, Abid Nadab and Malcaishu. But we slow right down around the inevitable judgment and death of Saul. Verse three the fighting grew fierce around Saul. And when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. So, multiple arrow wounds piercing his armor and his body of Saul. He's in a bad way. Uh, And as as he feared under that tamarisk tree back in chapter 22, he's almost alone, people of of God. He's deserted. Verse 4, Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and he fell on it. At the very end, Saul is abandoned, isn't he? Lonely. He holds no authority, even over his armor-bearer who stood there with him. His armor-bearer who incidentally shows more fear of God than Saul has for a very long time by refusing, as David does, to kill the anointed one of God. Um, And so he refuses. The irony, I guess, of Saul being the very one to bring about his own demise and literally the only one to bring about his own death is striking, isn't it? Who's he got to blame? Although he has blamed lots of people in this book. No one will even run him through with a sword at the end. He's literally got to take his own life and he ends his earthly life in misery. I guess it's equally ironic uh, when we're tempted to say that it's God's fault for not saving some in this age or for treating us in the way he does. If God is the one who saves, why should we be judged for rejecting him? Is this all Saul's fault? I mean, well, there's no innocence in Saul's life, is there? He deserves what he gets. We've had a recap of his life. He's lived by the spear and now he'll die by the sword, to twist a phrase. He lives for himself and he'll die by himself. He's been offered and shown God's anointing and yet rejected God's word and his end is inevitable and his end is deserved. And so is ours if we refuse to accept Jesus. Uh, The reality is we all need God's anointed one to save us. We all deserve death. We all deserve the inevitable judgment that Saul faces in this passage because there is no hope without Jesus. However hard we try, we always fall short of God's perfect standards. Even David, the anointed one of this book, in the second edition to Samuel, will need an ultimate saviour. Otherwise, our fears and our paranoia will come true, just like Saul. Not because our fears or our paranoia have any power in and of themselves, but because our fears tend to confirm what is absolutely true, because God has promised justice and judgment upon all who reject his anointed one. Here, 1 Samuel David for us. Jesus. As was promised in chapter 28, all of Israel now fall into the enemy hands in verses 6 and 7. They all need a saviour, don't they? It's not all just about Saul, it's about us, it's about everyone. No one can be saved. It's an inevitable sign as all of Israel uh, fall into the hands of the Philistines and are scattered that they all need an anointed one of God to save them. No one has a chance of victory or salvation or survival in this life without a savior. Uh, The Israelites flee from their homes, we read, and they they have to leave their towns. It's an utter tragedy. The Philistines come in and take over, homeless, kicked out of their villages. They're, They're scattering and running. I mean, again, the irony of this book comes, comes into focus in this last chapter. What was the whole point of the Israelites asking for a king? Do you remember back in chapter 8? This is what they said. The people refused to listen to Samuel, the prophet, who was speaking the word of God. And they said, no, they said, we want a king over us. Why? Then we will be like all the other nations with a king who will lead us and go out before us and fight Are battles. The irony, that is the king they wanted. They got the king they wanted. And what's happened? He's lost the battle and they've lost everything. Their greatest fears, the Israelites' greatest fears, their paranoia was that they'd be defeated by the terrible enemies around them. And what happens? The inevitable, because they rejected the true one of God. They rejected the word of God. In rejecting God, our fears come true. They are defeated. We are defeated. They lost. We will lose. The very thing they hoped to gain by rejecting God, their comfort. The enemies will be defeated. We'll be okay if we have a king like that. Let's live for ourselves, our own glory. We'll work it all out so we're okay. That very thing happened to them because they rejected God. Sad tragedy of those of us who live our lives in ignorance of God for our own comfort, for ourselves, ignoring the fruit that ought to come from the repentance of believing in the Savior Jesus, is the very thing that will come to us. Those fears and the paranoia will be forever realized in eternal judgment and hell when Christ returns. Rather than knowing the joy, and the sacrificial allegiance that we've seen in the life of David through this book. Now, and joyfully eternally, when Jesus returns. Uh, The irony continues. Uh, From the Philistines' perspective, uh, they see this great victory over the Israelites uh, as a victory for their own gods. Uh, They find Saul, remember, pierced by the arrows, injured, Uh, and then run through with his own sword, fallen, lying on the ground. Uh, They now strip him of his armor, they cut off his head, they send news across the entire land that he is defeated, and then they hang his armor, possibly him, the translations aren't exactly accurate, they hang his armor, at least, uh, in the temple of their own gods, their own idols. Come and gawp at the king of the God of Israel is the message. Our idols, our gods, have defeated him. Perhaps like our ancient cathedrals around uh, Europe, adorned with symbolism of, of an Almighty God, and yet used as an Almighty museum, I guess, of human interest and got a, a, a bygone era. God is hanging on display for us all to just gawp at and look. Such is the death of Jesus, isn't it? Uh, those around him mocked and scorned him as he was just hung there up for all to gawp at him. And look, humanity is one. Comfort is here. We've beaten our enemies. In all our fearfulness of facing God, we've managed to kill him. He's up there on the cross. Perhaps the true Christian life also looks a lot like that same kind of failure, doesn't it? As a kind of person who always turns the other cheek, look how weak they are, come and gawp at God. The one who always loves others and puts others before themselves, look how weak they are, come and gawp at this weak king and his people. People who take up their cross daily to follow and obey Jesus above their own comforts, at their own sacrifice and risk and cost. It may look like God Almighty has lost. His king Saul, his armor hangs for all to see, and Gorpa in the temple of a foreign god. Empty churches and cathedrals across our land, a god and a king crucified on a cross, persecuted Christians across the world, a culture that refuses. Uh, an ultimate truth of any kind, let alone the one of the Bible. Believers who look weak to the world because they never seem to stand up for themselves and fight. The irony that actually this is the very plan of God. So often faith is not what it seems and looks like on the outside, is it? But it's truly marked by the heart. You see, Saul's heart was fearful and paranoid, a life of loneliness, uh, of striving for self-worth, never achieving, never fully satisfied, always needing more and inevitably ending in death. But David's life, or well, what did his life look like? Well, it looked so distressed, didn't it? And, and fearful, always on the run, always having to escape, always having to spare the very man who was trying to kill him. Loving his his others before himself. He spared his enemies. He lived, though, in hope, not fear, didn't he? He trusted. He didn't mistrust. He was never lonely, for he had his band of four to 600 men, and he had the promises of God, and God speaking to him uh, throughout this book. He never stopped listening to God, and God never stopped speaking to him. Inevitably, as the book of two Samuel charts, uh, David will be victorious as king, a king who will lead to the ultimate and the only anointed one of God, the risen, uh, risen from the dead, who no longer hangs on the cross, the Lord Jesus. Christians, we are not a people who should live in fear and paranoia, unless, of course, we are living lives for ourselves seeking our own comforts. We've said we believe in Jesus, but we really live for ourselves. But Christians, we don't live in fear and paranoia. We need not protect our comforts and our rights. We need not to look strong and mighty and powerful before the world because we live in hope. We live in trust. We live knowing the anointed one will bring us home again. When we lose our homes and are scattered, He will heal us when we even die. He will reward us for every sacrifice we have made in this life. He will never stop speaking to us if only we listen and open his word. We are a people who seek Jesus in his word. A king, Jesus, in the line of David. The world is trying to fix its great fears and its failures. Its judgment. It's, it's looking for comfort and wealth and happiness and contentment and it's doing all of that by rejecting god christians we're even tempted to fix our fears uh, by laziness and ignoring his call to obedience and a sacrificial life for the lord jesus ironically all those fears will be realized all the more they will be fulfilled by rejecting jesus but by accepting jesus We will take the fear of death and judgment and we put it upon Jesus. He takes it upon himself. He will hang on the cross for all to gawp at in this world so that you and I may never have to face that. We will be free to be in relationship and live with him forever. Uh, towards the end of our passage, some Israelites from Jabash, Gilead. Uh, Ironically, uh, the only city that Saul really did any good work for in his reign. Uh, If you remember, that he came to their rescue uh, earlier on in 1 Samuel. Uh, And uh, they come to Saul and find his body and the the body of his souls. And they, uh, we assume, respectfully burn them and then they bury them. Do you know where they buried Saul and his sons, or or their ashes at least? Perhaps you've guessed it from my hint at the beginning. Verse 13, they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree. Not not the same one, it's in a different place, but there's got to be a reason the tamarisk tree comes up in that earlier chapter in here uh, at Jabash, and they fasted seven days. The spear-yielding, fearful, paranoid, powerful man... Seeking greatness in this world under that tamarisk tree, ranting and raving about his fears and his anxiety back in chapter 8. Where's the end? He's returned inevitably to the dust under a tamarisk tree. All of those fears he had under that tree, right back where they started, all fulfilled because he rejected the Lord. Uh, I'm going to read. We're going to go right back to chapter two now. You might want to look it up um, because I think when you come back to this prayer of Hannah, who was the mother of Samuel, if you remember, it makes so much sense. Now we reach the end of uh, one Samuel and the life of Saul. Uh, I'd encourage you to make make this prayer your daily prayer this week, uh, and think about what we've been saying today and uh, how we want to respond. Uh, to the Lord for his grace. Do we want, want to respond by saying we believe but living for ourselves? Or do we want to respond uh, in sacrificial obedience and love for him? Let's see what Hannah prayed and how it was fulfilled. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies for a delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance. Sound like Saul. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants. But the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. It's inevitable. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Isn't that good news? Let's love and obey the Lord this week. Amen. Uh, we have a, a minute of quiet just to uh, perhaps